This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. A good teacher really knows that the education really comes from within the child. It's not what you funnel into the child, it's, it's, it's that wonder that's within the child. And that knowledge is actually kind of there, it's in their DNA. It unleashes in them the students the ability to be that sponge and the ability to take this, this uh, spirit from within themselves and to utilize it by taking all these resources around them. So it's really a gift of learning, of seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, and converting that into real community, wellness, and prosperity. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This series is committed to giving full voice to innovative, creative, and imaginative educators and education leaders across the Hawaiian Islands. You can find them on Kauai, on Maui, on Molokai, and Lanai on Oahu and Hawaii Island. Our goal is a thousand points of light. And as we cross over 27,000 downloads to date, the wind is fully in our sails and we are firmly fixed on that North Star that is student-driven learning. Speaking of a thousand points of light, my guest today is Dr. Tammy Jones. Dr. Jones is a project coordinator for Places Hawaii at the University of Hawaii at Manoa supporting teachers on the Waianae Coast to develop place-based curricula. She's also the curriculum developer and co-facilitator of TriThink, a program run in the state correctional facilities and sponsored by the Hawaii Council for the Humanities. Dr. Jones spent the first 12 years of her career in education as an English teacher in both public and charter school settings. She earned her master's in teaching in 2005 and her PhD in curriculum studies in 2012, both from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Dr. Jones has worked closely with Dr. Thomas Jackson and the Uehiro Academy for Philosophy and Ethics in Education to promote Philosophy for Children Hawaii, known as P4C. Fred Rapoon, my nephew, and the education coordinator for the Heia National Estuarine Research Preserve said the following about Dr. Jones. We worked together for places in 2017 and helped to send three teams from Nanakuli High School to the science fair. Tammy has an amazing commitment and set of tools that she uses to elevate student voice and action at every scale, from daily conversations to classroom, to school, to community. Thanks to her, the Nanakuli student science projects were actually about them finding their confidence as thinkers and communicators. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Tammy Jones. Tammy, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Hey, thanks, Josh. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. So thanks for extending the invite. Yes, mutual. I've been looking forward to this conversation <laughs> for a long time. Awesome. So Tammy, at the risk of losing our listeners right out of the gate, I want to ask you about a concept called teacher efficacy, um, inspired by an article we both read titled The Past and Future of Teacher Efficacy at ASCD by Thomas Guskey. 
I'm going to read a quote. So quote, in particular, we must try to create situations where teachers can realize their actions have an important positive influence on their students' learning. Instead of trying to change teachers' attitudes and beliefs directly, we must change the experiences that shape those attitudes and beliefs. Specifically, we must provide teachers with mastery experiences." Unquote. In other words, we will see teacher efficacy, which the dictionary defines as the ability to produce a desired or intended result, when teachers don't just believe they can make a difference, but see real evidence they are making a difference. So you've been in the front row of this conversation, Tammy, and I would love to hear an example or two of when you more than just believed in your efficacy, your ability to make change, but saw the evidence as if you were an eyewitness. You know, I think teacher efficacy is a really complex idea because, you know, you need to develop the confidence in order to do that, though, you first have to try <laughs> right. and and sometimes fail. And then, you know, the confidence is lost to try again. And so it's confidence is a big part of that. You know, you have to believe that what you're doing works and what you're doing has an impact. And just after that quote you read, the, the author mentions um, having to teachers need specific and regular feedback right on how their actions are affecting their students. And when I read that, I was thinking, you know, that feedback should come from the students. And so with your question about maybe an example or two, I think in general, when I provided opportunities for students to give me the feedback in terms of demonstrating um, what they learned. So for example, if we were analyzing a text, I was an English teacher, um, whenever I was able to step away and the inquiry or the discussion, the analysis continued without me, um, that was when I was able to have that confidence that, okay, you know, they can learn mm. without me. I can be, you know, on the side, an observer to the learning. And so I think in general, whenever that happened in my classroom, we got to that point, uh, you know, which doesn't happen right away. But when you get to that point where the students can be independent and doing the skills that you've been practicing, um, then that was points in my uh, career where I felt like, okay, you know, what I'm doing works, what I'm doing has an impact. So, you know, I think anytime that students can give that direct feedback, they're sort of like our client, right? You know, mm. and so when they give the feedback that they get it, it works, then that I think is the most mm. regular and specific, you know, um, rather than an outside person observing and saying, yes, what you're doing is having an impact. Mm. Um, but, you know, more specifically, uh, the first example that always comes to mind when I think about this type of question or, or when I saw the biggest change in what was happening in my classroom to know that this, you know, it was worth the risk was um, something I, I always refer to as the intervention. Mm. <laughs> I believe, you know, learning can't happen if any child in the classroom doesn't feel safe, you know, sharing, yeah. asking a question, et cetera. And so once there's something stopping students from doing that, then you have to pause and look at the community. And so there's this, there was a point where learning wasn't happening in my classroom and I, I couldn't figure out why. And there was, you know, bullying and intimidation. And so I did, you know, what I call the intervention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I used that community to correct itself. So I posed some questions to my students, all of them anonymously. They wrote how they feel in that classroom, the reasons why they felt safe or unsafe. And then 
the following day I shared those back, you know, without any judgment, without coming from me, um, just sharing the words of the community back on the community and it corrected itself mm. and then we could continue. And so I think, you know, that would be the, the biggest moment in my career where I was able to step back and just believe mm-hmm. that this community, you know, when given the time to reflect and share and a space to do so in a safe way mm. would correct itself. Um, and I think that was a huge impact on my belief, and my confidence, mm. um, what was happening. You know, what I love about this is that, and, and what you're describing here is for so many years, we gathered input from students using year-end evaluations or forms mm. or, you know, things like that. And what you're describing is entirely different. What you're describing is not them, you know, coming to you and saying, Ms. Jones, here's what I'm thinking or here's what I'm experiencing. What they're doing is exercising their voices and their skills and their abilities right in front of you. And that in itself is a feedback to you, right? Right. And, you know, I think that's more powerful coming yeah. from the students. Again, more more terrifying sometimes <laughs> right. or, ris- or risky. Yeah. But if it's provided in the right, you know, format, a way that they feel that what they're going to say actually matters and will impact what happens in the classroom or, um, and it could be with content as well. You know, maybe they share that they're not being challenged enough or maybe they share that, they're a little lost, mm-hmm. but giving them a proper space to do that um, will show the impact, I think, greater than someone providing outside feedback or someone who doesn't know the students as well right. as you do. Um, yeah. Right. So, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, so I think, you know, teacher efficacy is, is such a complex thing, right? Because it it's not something you just have. Yeah. And it's it's hard to develop if you're not feeling comfortable, especially early in your career, you know, to develop without proper supports and, you know, you need some ideas and some people guiding you. But in the end, I think it's really what the students Mm. are showing you, telling you. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if the feedback coming in, as you described earlier, is, you know, indicating that maybe things are not working in some (laughs) way, it's most, most important that you have colleagues that you can turn to, who can coach, Mm. who can listen, um, and that you have a sort of support network as you receive that feedback and try to figure out what it actually means. So you're right. Mm-hmm. It is a really complex topic, and um, but something that I'm super interested in, and I'm hoping to continue to ask guests on this podcast as we go forward about what they think about it. So that's very cool. Um, so Tammy, way back when I spoke to an individual doing pretty heroic work in Hawaii to help reimagine public education, he talked about the quote, 51 mandates sitting on teachers shoulders this was a few years ago um, which crushed the life out of them and prevent them from working towards teacher efficacy um and i and he literally meant 51 mandates like he counted them up and there were 51 of them i was just amazed um so i don't want to put you on the spot but what are some things teachers are mandated to do that maybe we should remove or set aside what are your thoughts about that Mm, well, I think, you know, the obvious one is testing. In the high school grades where I was, uh, there's only one year of that, you know, state test, but still there's that requirement, you know, and not to teach to the test, but you know, that's a thing. Kids have to take it, you know, school, certain things about the school rely on it. Um, it's going to be reported to the public how well we did. So there's a lot of stress. I think that's yeah. the first one. I think there's different there's different mandates probably in the in the lower elementary area that I'm not as familiar with, but I know 
getting kids to pass is sometimes more on the teacher. You know, I, I hate to say, but mm-hmm. proving that you did anything and everything to get that student through. And maybe that's not verbalized as much, but it is an expectation that, you know, well, did you do everything to get them to that graduation line? And that's that's a lot of pressure on teachers. I think some of the things, another obvious thing, you know, is standards. I do believe there should be, you know, some standardized education, but to say, you know, everybody's teaching this thing on this day or these particular standards in this order mm-hmm. uh, really limits teachers, limits the, the profession. Mm-hmm. I moved to a, a charter school environment. I felt that more. I was, I was trusted as a professional that, that I am to teach what I believe the students needed to learn when they needed to learn it and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very limiting in the, the traditional K-12 classroom, a little bit more mandated to follow, you know, a certain, uh, let's say, curriculum map, right? Um, And again, not that I don't believe in those things, but when you're mandated, it's handed to you. Here's what you're teaching in this order. Go for it. You know, back to that first question, it's really hard to develop your confidence and skill set as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And your efficacy as a teacher as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Mean, yeah. And it's also limiting on time. I mean, every time that you add a mandate, that means time is taken to work on whatever that mandate is, and time is taken away right. from something that you might want to be doing to develop yourself as a teacher or to develop your classroom as that, you know, you described right. a minute ago that starting with that safe place that kids can come and then begin to learn, right? Yeah. And mandates are often, you know, a blanket thing. Everyone does it, right? And right. so it's not specific to your students' individual needs. And again, you know your students best. You know, you spend that time with them. Yeah. And so I think mandates that are, you know, not flexible in any way or just everyone, no exception, um, things like that, I think, you know, need to be changed and more trust on the professional that is, you know, leading the classroom and guiding those students to to that end goal. Right, know? right. So, Tammy, let's dive into, speaking of something that's like super positive, let's dive into places, which when I dug into it as part of my prep really blew my mind. I have several questions in this section about places. So you are one of four project coordinators for places, which is grounded uh, on the leeward coast of Oahu in the Waianae community. What is your elevator in a nutshell description (laughs) of places? It's funny, we always ask ourselves that question. Mm -hmm. It's hard to describe what we do. Basically, you know, we connect uh, classroom to community. So working as, I guess, like a liaison between the two, oftentimes teachers don't know uh, how to reach out to community members or or community members, right? They may not work in the community they live in. Um, And community members often don't know how to get into the classrooms or, you know, offer opportunities to teachers. And so... Uh, places, we provide place-based learning experiences for students in the K-12 environment and the Waianae Coast. Mm-hmm. I guess it's the pitch, mm. the elevator speech, yeah. Right. And you know what I've experienced over six years of doing this most likely to succeed in what school could be work here in Hawaii is, you are right, there are lots of teachers who don't have any connection to the community Um, or don't really know how to reach out to community. And then there's like hundreds of educators out there who have made that leap. They have started to develop relationships with uh, organizations or projects in the community. Um, And it's just fascinating to see how that's happened. You know, it's just like any 
process of building a relationship. You have to reach out, you have to get to know, you have to listen and all of those kinds of things. And it sounds like places helps educators actually start that process. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, you know, our job relies on relationships. I have to build those relationships with teachers as well as the community members. And it's it's funny, I'm one of those teachers who worked in a community I didn't live in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have those close ties in, in that community to reach out to provide experiences for my students. Um, now I realize how valuable that is. Yeah. And I actually, you know, I often laugh at how connected I am to the white and I coast and I, I don't live there. Yeah. I, I live, you know, I've never lived out that way, but I have such a network out there, of both um, community partners and teachers. And it comes through the relationship in the, in the work we do. And that is a hundred percent, you know, what it depends on. And, and then of course the students building relationships with those people and places yeah. that they get to, to go to that are in their own backyard, literally, but they, they don't know about. They don't have that experience. Yeah, that's awesome. So while reading the place's origin story on the front page of its awesome website, I was stopped in my tracks, Tammy, by this quote. So quote, so together we all explored and learned of the incredible depth and wealth of cultural capital, intellectual capital, and spiritual capital. The more students were able to access this capital, the more curious, engaged, and positive they grew, end quote. So I wonder if you can explain the relationship described in this quote between access to capital and emergent curiosity and engagement. You know, so we see students that when they have access to something new, different than what they've, they're used to, they become more curious, right? And so that idea of this emerging curiosity and wonder and inquiry comes from something new. Mm -hmm. And so we see every time over these years when we get students out to learn about, let's say, the capital of their community, they are more interested in connecting that to the subject areas they're learning, right? And so when they are at the farm working alongside, you know, partners who went to the same high school they did, who live up the street from them, who know the same spots in their community, Mm -hmm. then they're opening up to to that relationship. They're starting to wonder more about that place, how this person got there, what do they do? You know, their wonder guides the learning. And that's what we want. You know, the students are then able to direct their own learning, of course, still with some guidance by the teacher to get them through what they need to learn. Let's say, you know, it's still perhaps a a science class, Mm -hmm. but let's have the students direct how they want to learn that. Mm. You know, we definitely believe that the Waianae Coast is so rich mm. in these opportunities for kids and have, you know, so much respect for all the partners that do provide this sort of capital for the kids to come and learn alongside mm-hmm. of them. And it, then it becomes this mutually beneficial relationship and learning experience. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that that we assume that the kids have this core capital, which is their desire to inquire, to wonder. To learn. Right. And when you start from that place, then it's just a process of figuring out where all the other types of capital exist and then connecting them in that way, right? So that's that's super cool. So Dr. K. Fukuda, who is the place's project director, talks about the the authentic connection between what students are learning in their classes and what that means in their community. So I want to provide our listeners a concrete example of a place-based project. Places is place-based learning and community engagement in school. Students need to know where they come from and where they live. 
and they need to understand the strengths within their community, and there are a lot of them. And that needs to be part of um, their education. And that's what PLACES tries to do. It's always understanding the historic, contextualizing it within the present, in order to prepare the students to be the stewards of the future. The, the PLACES website talks about presenting a water resolution at the annual Native Hawaiian Civic Club Conference. So tell me, what was this about and, and what happened during the student presentation? This uh, project is super close to my heart. I got to work on it. Uh, my first year coming to PLACES was uh, 2016 to 2017 school year, and that's when this uh, project took place. These students were um, seniors in a credit recovery program at Nanakuli High School. And they, you know, they're together all day, every day. And rightfully so, their teachers wanted to provide them with another experience, outside learning experience. So we went once a week to Ka'ala Farm. And I always think back in the first day that we went and we took the kids on a hike up to the water source. Um, and wow. they learned a little bit about the, the history of water. And it's, you know, it's not a huge hike. It's it's a mile up and back. Um, but man, did they complain the whole way. Oh, I back. can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, first, first day up there, August, it's hot in Waianae. And so hiking up, learning the history, hiking back down, and then we take out PVC pipe. And, um, you know, that's how the water is brought down, actually, to this farm from the stream, the mile up uh, PVC pipe to roll it down into the uh, Lo'i terraces, right? And so we have these students help do that. And again, man, they're complaining and this is manual labor and, you know, child labor and all this stuff. And it's funny. And I tell that because you fast forward to what you just mentioned, that, that conference we took them to where they were so passionate about fighting for the right to have water on that farm. And it shows you that, you know, if, if we started with, hey, we're going to learn how to write a resolution and we're going to go to neighborhood board meetings and we're going to go to civic clubs, that's stomping out that curiosity. It's telling them, right? Instead, it was, let's, let's go explore. Let's see what's happening in this farm in our community. Let's learn about the history. And once they became connected to that place and the people there, they wanted to, they just wanted to work hard. They wanted to fight for it. So, you know, they had to be presented with this opportunity in a way that they could access it. Mm. So, you know, it's in my neighborhood. Wow, there's this farm and there's this amazing person, Eric Enos, who's fighting, who's been fighting for water. And that's crazy. You know, how did, why does he have to fight for water? And then when they're working in the Lo'i and they're seeing how important that is. And through that experience, then they became passionate, right? Um, we didn't intend to write a resolution. And then again, that was an opportunity that came up and they, as a collective group, wrote the resolution. A handful of them went to different neighborhood boards and civic clubs and presented it and cut to a year later. It was the fall of 2017. So actually they had graduated and two of them came back and we took them to that conference and they just blew everyone away. Whereas the meaning of Waianae is fresh water mullet, and whereas Waianae Valley traditionally was known as the food basket. And whereas according to the Board of Water Supply, current data 1.4 million gallons of water flows from Kanish Tunnel per day. Whereas water is life and was like blood for Hawaiians, without blood in your body you cannot survive. And whereas the entire Waianae Valley without water cannot survive. 
you know, to see these, these youth um, come up. And it was a very interesting uh, hearing. It didn't pass that first year. It took us another year to get it passed. But, you know, so many people were just fascinated by these youth who were there on behalf of this organization, this farm, this important place in their community. And they were fighting for what it deserved, you know, and, and following along in the footsteps of Eric Enos and the Ka'ala farm team to do that. And, you know, again, unfortunately it didn't pass that year, but it did, it did later. And um, it just is a legacy, you know, mm-hmm. that they have left. Yeah. And the fact that it didn't pass the first year in and of itself is a powerful lesson. That's everybody has to go through multiple iterations of things that they want to get done. I mean, this is about efficacy again, right? They're, they're right. learning the process of what it means to bring change into the community that they live in. And and the fact that it didn't pass is going to be, you know, a, a great moment for them to go in and reflect on what did we do and what did we not do and what did we have to do again? So that's, that's very cool. So kind of along the same lines, um, and I could literally ask you hundreds of questions about places and mm-hmm. place-based learning, but we're limited by time. Um, at the places site, I found the following descriptor, and I'm going to read it all the way through. So quote, multiple literacies. Children encounter many opportunities to acquire various literacies through projects, whether it is researching mo'olelo, which is storytelling, writing and filming public service announcements, or creating procedural manuals or constructing worm bins. Literacy is acquired and practiced in authentic contexts. Um, so Tammy, in a previous episode, I spoke to a remarkable elementary school administrator um, at Mid-Pacific Institute, Edna Hussey, about the idea of not forcing kids to read too early, but giving them opportunities to, quote, read the world. So multiple literacy sounds very similar and very powerful. What is what is the power in training for multiple literacies? In other words, it's one thing for an education geek like me to get amped up on the idea, but let's be sure everyone listening understands what we're talking about, right? So multiple literacies. Right. Read the world. I love that. Yeah. I mean, just using that last example of those students in the A'ali'i program, they were reading the environment they were getting to go to each week. They were learning about the history, like you said, Mo'olelo from from listening. Mm-hmm. They um, had to build up their capacity to sit and listen mm-hmm. to stories and understand how powerful it was to be gifted with that story from the people of that place. Mm-hmm. They learn the cultural practices by doing, right? Um, learning by doing is, we all know, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the education realm, we always hear that, you know, if you can, if you can do it yourself, if you can teach someone else, you know, it's the level to which you've retained that knowledge. Something, something that was important to me was the experience in this class, learning new things. This program, Ali, is Kahala Farm. And this program is that working with everybody. The teamwork we did. The name in general, Ali, which is resilience. Everybody worked as a team. We never give up. The classmates I've been with through this whole year. The thing I will miss about this program is Laulima, working hard with our hands. One thing I will remember about Ali is we work as a family. We never do give up. We always have a smile on our face. Whenever, when anybody's down, we always come there and help them out. It's like, basically, we is family. program would probably be the teamwork I experienced. Last year, I didn't really have a lot of friends or anything. Everything I went through, everything I experienced, 
to be honest, if it wasn't for it, I wouldn't be here right now, be the person I am today. Before I never did wanted to do work, before I never did wanted to come outside, being in a hot sun. I like learning things because instead of being in a classroom, just talking about it, I want to be in the classroom and just do it. Um, and so when they learn, for example, to make a rock wall um, or to clear and um, patch a lo'i, they were learning by doing. Mm -hmm. And that literacy is just knowing the right thing to do when you see it, when you feel it, right? There's not like a set step or procedure necessarily to patch a lo'i, mm -hmm. um, but you see that it needs it because you're doing like kilo, right? You're observing, you're seeing that the water is or is not moving. You're seeing that the kalo is maybe not thriving. So a lot of the observation, we do bring in kilo practices a lot to these projects. And so being able to read what's around them and getting to that place where they realize how important this water resolution was, right? So after a whole year of hearing the history, seeing the history, seeing the need, actually putting their hands and feet and sometimes their whole bodies in the water, then it became real for them. And, and they were, it was a part of them. Mm -hmm. I know in that resolution, they make that comment about restoring life, right? Water is life. Yeah, and so right. they really in internalized the need for this. And so I would say they, be, you know, they had these multiple literacies of just Ka'ala farm, but mm -hmm. it provided such, you know, such a diverse experience for them. And that is a goal with all of these projects we do. Um, some of places is a during the school day program. So these projects are meant to enhance their curriculum, what mm -hmm. they're learning. And then our after-school program is also a place connection, but, you know, a little bit more freedom since it's after-school. But the idea always remains, you know, to get them to learn new things about something maybe they think they already know, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, something they haven't experienced before as well. You know, Tammy, I got total goosebumps, chicken skin, as we say in Hawaii, when I was listening to the young man reading the resolution to the Hawaiian Civic Club um, and he was going through the cadence of whereas and whereas and whereas and the degree to which he understood that he was laying out a series of assumptions that everyone in the room had to make as they moved towards the actual text of the resolution was incredible. Therefore, be it so resolved that the 1.4 million gallon of water that is being diverted out of this Kunish tunnel be released back into the stream be it further resolved that releasing the water back to the stream would be like the blood flowing to our vein, giving us back life. And I think that what you're describing here, what you've just described, is really the process of where you read the world, where you gain those multiple literacies, and then they result in something that's very kind of dramatic in a moment. It's a, it's a leap forward in your own ability to kind of make your point, to bring your voice right to the to the table. And I'm, I'm wondering if you saw that moment kind of in the same way that I did. Oh, yeah. I still, <laughs> I mean, I've seen those videos. There's a few of them, right? And uh, I, I get choked up every time. And especially because he gets choked up when he's reading it. You know, he there's a little, a little thing in his throat there. Um, and also knowing him mm -hmm. and knowing how that is an experience. If I had showed him that video a year or two years prior, he wouldn't have believed that was him. Yeah. Right. Um, and probably his teachers wouldn't have either. But, you know, you see, and again, you know, I said these kids are in credit recovery and struggling to graduate. And then you look and it's like, man, you went beyond just meet the credits, you know, like yeah. you went beyond just get to the, the graduation mm -hmm. ceremony. They did something big for their community. And oh yeah, I get choked up every time. And 
I've seen it <laughs> yep. probably two dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. He became a citizen of the community in that moment. It was marvelous to watch that For happen. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we will continue our conversation with Dr. Tammy Jones. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Dr. Tammy Jones, a project coordinator for Places Hawaii, which supports teachers on the Waianae Coast developing place-based curriculum. So Tammy, in this section, I wanna focus on Eye to Eye, which is your passion project, and the reason why I had the idea to have you on this podcast in the first place. So though not relevant to future listeners, you have a workshop on Eye to Eye coming up in December of 2021 at the Hanaholi Professional Development Center, which is absolutely fantastic. So. What is the derivation of Eye to Eye? What is its origin story and what is its vision and mission? I think it's the application of the evolution <laughs> of uh, myself from, you know, I was thinking about this as a classroom teacher working directly with students to now working alongside students and teachers together more than I ever did mm -hmm. um, when I was in the classroom and to even rolling out a little bit further to working with adults in some different um, capacities that I've been able to. And with all of that, you know, I always value the importance of having this community, this network and, you know, reflecting back on that first question, you know, when you said about my own efficacy, I was thinking, you know, what what made me feel that I had <laughs> the confidence <laughs> to try some of these things, yeah. especially being such, I mean, the largest high school in the state and the only one trying some of the things I was doing with philosophy for children. And, but I just did. And I was thinking what made me take that chance, that risk. And it was the network I had. It was a support. I mm. was in a, a cohort program um, that provided me with colleagues doing the same thing, but maybe at different schools, different grades, but we could come together in a safe place and talk about our frustrations, our successes, exchange ideas, brainstorm. And that was, you know, outside of the school setting with my same, you know, uh, teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, you know, especially working alongside adults now, we all need that. You know, a lot of teachers still still need to have this safe network to to do that with, to mm -hmm. 
celebrate, to to sort of share struggles, to support. And sadly, it really doesn't exist. And so I think the push for me was when we got to, you know, 2020 and the pandemic hit and suddenly everybody was needing support in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. But teachers were really reaching out um, to us with my, my places team for ideas. You know, how, how can we uh, engage the students and just their own frustrations and sharing how they didn't have time for things right now because they just had to make this pivot. You know, they had to drop other projects to make this pivot and they were struggling. And I, I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be great to have this place of people who can understand because they're also teachers, but it's not just a, uh, venting session. You mm-hmm. know, it's not just all of us were in the same boat and let's just complain or or share struggles in this boat, but other people that might help to get us out mm-hmm. of that situation to provide support or um or ideas or hey, this is what we're doing over here. Why don't you try that? Mm-hmm. And getting a broader range of perspectives. And so that's sort of how it came. Um, also myself having some downtime <laughs> during uh this pandemic, you know, we work with teachers and suddenly teachers aren't on school. So I, at school, so I had some downtime myself and I really got to map this idea out, this eye to eye project, which is, is just that it's providing a a safe space for, for teachers to exchange their ideas, you know, Mm. to give support, to receive support, to ask questions, to learn some strategies, mainly with uh, philosophy for children, P for C, which is at the core of who I am as an educator. Um, And so sharing some of that Mm -hmm. and just to, to connect, you know, and I think connection is a basic human need and education can be a very isolating profession. You go to your classroom, you do your thing and and that's it. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just want to provide spaces for teachers to come to have these discussions that they come with, you know, so the, the idea of I come with my ideas and my, my struggles, my success, my challenge, just my support. And I leave that with some affirmation to continue going, you mm-hmm. know, to to step ahead. And so that's where the name comes from as well. The I, myself, I come to the space and I leave with this affirmation, this this yes in Hawaiian I mm-hmm. to, to continue going. And I, I realize now that it's how I entered the profession. I'm extremely lucky that I entered education, like I said, in a cohort. And so mm-hmm. that was built in. You know, I was lucky to be have that built into my experience, and uh, that's not true with all educators. So, yeah, yeah. Wow, I think you've you've definitely laid an idea on the table here, which is let's make sure that educators enter the profession in a cohort and yeah. not and not alone, right? Yeah. yeah. And and thank you for providing you know the denotation and the connotation of eye to eye. Um, I wanted to make sure that people understood you know what its origin story is. So. Your, your workshop will focus on two essential questions. How might we build community in uncertain times and spaces? And mm-hmm. how might we as educators support one another in doing so? So before I have you answer those two questions, I know that you probably figured that was what was gonna happen. I wanna ask mm-hmm. a process question. Um, what was your process, your journey to eye to eye to these two beautiful essential questions like allow us tammy a window into the life of a person designing a passion project like lots of cups Mm. of tea late nights reading stuff talking to colleagues going for long hikes where you can (laughs) think and scheme like what 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 do we see if we look in that window of you coming to this place that is eye to eye 
<laughs> None of those things, which is <laughs> funny. I'm like, wow, you make it sound so much more beautiful than what actually happened. <laughs> well, you know, I think it, it's honestly the evolution of those 12 years as a teacher mm-hmm. and continuing to value the establishment of community. I put that first priority in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And then moving into the next phase of my career, I'd say, and continuing to have opportunities uh, working with places and working um, with other groups of adults, seeing that community is still so important. And so just always holding that as uh, a core belief, we have to be able to establish Mm -hmm. a sense of community Mm -hmm. in order to learn, grow, have a relationship. And so that first question, how might we build community in uncertain times and spaces? You know, it's not something I have an answer for. It's something that we will discuss and and think through together. Like, how can we do that? How are you doing that? How's it going? Are you still struggling? You know, we are sort of, I hate to use the word normal, but coming back to normal in terms of kids are at school, you know, Mm -hmm. every day in most cases, but it's still uncertain kids are coming back after being away for so long. And so how do we get back to community and trusting this experience, trusting that, you know, it's, it's safe here when it is such an uncertain time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. really just, if you, if you just looked into the window, as you said, I think you would just see that that's always been something I've held at my core Mm -hmm. um, is establishing community. Uh, And you can't just say, okay, we're a community and, poof, you're a community, right? It has to be in the experiences you provide, the language you use. Mm-hmm. I want to ask educators, you know, how, how can we do that? How are you doing that? Um, and if no one is or has any idea, we'll get there through a conversation. You know, is that something we all value? Mm. I have this image in my mind, you know, of the proverbial Amish barn raising um, with everyone's <laughs> hands on the wood as they as they move the walls from flat to upright and when you're when you're talking about building community you know most people build with other people it's hard to build something by yourself i mean i know it can be done but um and especially in these uncertain times when you're using maybe technologies for building that you've never used before look at the extent to which people had to learn how to communicate with each other during the pandemic using um, things like Google Meet, which is what we're using today, or Zoom, or or any of the other technologies, and how do you exist in those spaces, but continue to build things together? And it sounds like this has all been on your mind as you've had what you described as a bit of downtime to really think through what this would be about. Is that is that a fair statement? Yes, totally. And I think an unexpected experience that I had uh, is teaching in the correctional facility, mm. and I think that might have been the the final sort of push over into following through on this idea I've been kicking around in my head because that is an ex- always uncertain yes. time and space. Yep. And it is not a space that values community in the sense of we need to establish it, right? It's not something that the, let's say, administration puts forth and wants to establish among the men and women. It's not a space where you're asked, you know, what do you think? What are you wondering about? It's the complete opposite of what I would hope to create in a classroom. And so when we were, my partner and I were doing, have been doing that for four years. And then again, with the pandemic that stopped, knowing that the men and women valued that so much, they needed that safe community, that space to think, to talk, to support, to cry. Um, And then it was gone in a second for a year and a half Mm -hmm. really sort of, I think was kind of the thing that pushed me into like, okay, this isn't just what students need. 
Mm-hmm. This isn't just what what teachers necessarily need. It's really what adults need in this time is these these places to come and talk and share. But you know, my focus being in education, I, I really want to have that mm-hmm. for teachers. Right, right. You know, back in 1999, when I was getting my master's at um, University of Hawaii Manoa in the College of Education, I my master's was in education foundations. I was actually mm-hmm. on a contract with an office of the governor of Hawaii called State Volunteer Services. And we were working with the corrections facility to try to develop opportunities for inmates who qualified to actually do volunteer work to come out into the community and to give back to the community. And I'm just thinking about what you just described and how there are these steps to re-entering and being part of the community and and what you're referencing, if I'm correct, is try think, right? Um, correct. Yeah, and that that's just um, it feels right. It feels pono. It feels holistic and organic, um, but always with an eye to the realities of what you know the the uncertain realities of being incarcerated and. Um, so that's really interesting that you're doing that. So kind of along the same lines and continuing with eye to eye, I'm a daydreamer, Tammy, and I, I, I do a lot of daydreaming. I, I often daydream while I'm swimming, which is a little bit dangerous, but um, I, I, try to, I try to bring things into reality through my daydreaming. So let's give you an opportunity to daydream right now. And let's imagine your passion project is successful in the months and years to come for the child in an elementary or middle or high school classroom setting, whatever the learning setting is, how might life change because the quote teacher is infused with the concept of eye to eye because of the work that you're doing? Oh, I love it. Yes, I think you know teachers have to have the experience, whatever that is, firsthand and feel the value of it, the impact of it to then want it for their students. And so my hope would be that you know, in the, in the months and years down the line when eye to eye is more than just me doing mm-hmm. this work with teachers, that teachers are having these experiences that they value with one another. They're, they're valuing that importance of establishing a community and using that community to gain perspectives, right? To try things out. And you know what? Even to develop that efficacy, mm-hmm. that safe space to try, um, to get some feedback, right? And then it carries into their classroom. So sort of their lived experience, they want that for their students and they they know how to provide that because they've done it. In the future, I think how students would benefit from this is that they come to school feeling that they are a part of a community. They are part of something. Their contribution matters. Mm-hmm. Their wondering is valued, their questions, their voice. Mm-hmm. And teachers are empowered to move beyond those mandates. They are empowered to, you know, yeah. Find a place for them. It's true. It's, you know, part of the profession, but in a way that values this community. We're we're a co-learner in it. We are doing this together. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so you you've inspired me. One more question before we we take another break. You've inspired me to go back to something we were talking about earlier, which is the multiple literacies. So Again, kind of in the daydreaming mode, we all wonder what happens to our students as they move on with their lives after school. You've been describing how eye to eye ultimately might have an influence on their lives in school, quote unquote. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you were daydreaming about kids really skilled in multiple literacies, what would you hope their, their lives look and feel like in the years 
beyond school, when we sometimes lose track of them, but sometimes we reconnect with them? Yeah, I've recently had this wave of reconnection with students, uh, which is beautiful. Some, you know, 30 years old or in their mid-20s, which I can't mm. believe I have students of that age. But, <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I see them as adults and what they're doing. And it's just, man, they are just doing it. Like whatever they're interested in, passionate about, they just go for it. Mm -hmm. They are trying things. They are confident in their ability to just, and I'm not saying that, you know, being in my 10th grade English class necessarily supported that, but the fact that they reach back out to share what they're doing. And mm -hmm. I know that they value that I'm still a part of that community. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're proud to share what they've done. Mm -hmm. I think my daydream would be that as students leave, you know, if they come through this eye to eye mentality, philosophy approach in their K to K 12 experience and they leave, that they enter the, the next phase of their life as curious, kind, reflective mm. individuals. And they do have that multiple literacy in terms of like, yes, sure, they, they can do the typical literacies, let's say, you know, that are required in school, but they're also able to, like you said, read the world and they are observant and mm -hmm. their choice, their choices are mm -hmm. based, based on that reflection and observation. Yeah. I have this one student, a former student from quite a long time ago. Um, her name is Marissa and, and she and I text each other several times a week, which is a great blessing mm -hmm. to me. And I just experienced this moment where she walked away from a nine to five job in Chicago She's from here, but um, living in Chicago, and she she walked away from that job to take an entrepreneurial step into a business of her own that helps build community in Chicago. And, I, and wow, it's just like you see the multiple wow. literacies and the efficacy and everything else kind of on display. And and mm -hmm. that that brings me to you know thinking about well, okay, so this text thread that's been going on for more than ten years you know, is actually evidence. It's evidence to me in real time. I'm seeing it. I'm not believing it. I'm actually seeing it happen in front of me, which which is where we started this whole thing with efficacy, right? Right. Yeah, it's very cool. So, right. hey, everybody, stay with us. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Tammy Jones in just a minute. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Dr. Tammy Jones, who, at the time we recorded this interview, was preparing to do a workshop with the Hanahaoli Professional Development Center. This workshop addresses two questions. How might we build community in uncertain times and spaces? And how might we, as educators, support one another in doing so? So in this final section, Tammy, I want to give you a chance to do several shout outs. Um, <laughs> so here we go. So um, I contend, Tammy, that our charter school law establishing 25 demonstration charter schools in 1994 helped Hawaii avoid some of the angry confrontations we see between public, private and charter school sectors on the mainland, meaning the other 49 states. So you have mm -hmm. worked at 
and with two of our charter schools here in Hawaii, Dreamhouse Academy and the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, known as SEEKS. So you're a scientist. I, I know that your your history as an educator comes through in, in language and literacy, but you're a scientist in every sense of the word to me. And I'm super interested <laughs> in the DNA of schools. So what are the primary contributions these two very different but very similar chartered middle schools. What are those contributions? What are their, what's their DNA in, in your perspective? Wow. Um, well, at SEEKS, I was on the faculty, on the team, and at DreamHouse, I'm on the board. So mm -hmm. I, I can speak to them a little differently. Yeah. yeah at SEEKS, as a faculty member, I was, I was given that freedom. I, I mentioned earlier yeah. the trust. You know, you're a professional. I, I remember the day I asked a uh, school leader, I, I asked Buffy, what am I teaching? And she said, English. I said, yeah, but like, like what? Because I was ready for that curriculum math, right? That, mm -hmm. that these are the texts you have to teach in this grade. And she was like, whatever you want. And man, my whole world opened up. <laughs> um, and I was, it was almost too big, right? But yeah. I was, and I think that's one thing that the charter school, or at least that one did for me and the other, I, the other teachers there is give you that freedom to apply what you know is right, what is what is right for your students uh, to be the professional. You know, no one has to look over your shoulder and, and tell you what to do um, in, in that sense of your classroom. And so I think that's one is creating those types of teachers and putting that trust in them. And then, of course, I mean, that's efficacy right away. You're trusted. There's the confidence you're hired on this team mm -hmm. because of the professionalism, what you bring to it. So now, now go and do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that definitely goes right into the classroom. And then you, students are provided with these authentic learning experiences from a variety of teachers with different backgrounds and strengths. And then as a, as a team, you gain that from one another. You know, um, when I started myself and one other English teacher were the English department. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we came to it from very different backgrounds and expectations and experiences, but neither was right or wrong. You know, mm -hmm. it was both valued. And so then the students get this range of experiences. Um, and then also, you know, seeks valuing even just in its name, this, this idea of essential questions and mm -hmm. having students create and explore, you know, their own question and supporting them along the road, but really getting them to be independent thinkers and learners and also collaborate on projects, but really pushing them to get to that place of wondering mm -hmm. right away. So so before you talk about Dreamhouse, I want to ask you something else about Seeks. You know, when I talk to people about Seeks or or if it if Seeks comes up in conversations, sometimes it's referred to as the how might we school. And I wonder you know, if you can explain exactly what that means, you know, just let's just say that I'm a parent and I have a middle school student, I'm interested in SEEKS and I'm like, what does a how might we school kind of look and sound and feel like? What does that mean? What is its DNA? You know, I haven't heard that before uh, in reference to SEEKS, but hearing it, how might we, what stands out to me is the we, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a team, it's the teacher and the student, it's the whole the whole group, how might we figure this out? How might we explore this question? How mm. might we improve this? And so it just in that framing of it, it is teacher is a co-learner very mm. much. And how, how might we figure it out? It sort of links design thinking together, which is, you know, that, that design prompt approach with the, the notion of community that we're, we are going right. to do this together. I am not going to do it alone. Right? Mm. Yeah. And also instead of, 
let's do this <laughs> and being more directive, like this is what mm-hmm. we're going to do. Now let's do it. It's open, right? Mm-hmm. How might we do this? And in, you know, my questions for the, the workshop start with how might mm-hmm. we, uh, right. you know, which is funny that I haven't heard that <laughs> before in <laughs> reference, in reference to Sikhs, maybe it is just in the DNA, you know, mm-hmm. it is in that belief of you come to it as a we and, and open to the answers or the outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's not just, we're going to do this now, let's do it. Yeah, I did an episode with Buffy Krishman Pates, who's the school mm-hmm. director and, and and the founder, and we really dug deep into the DNA of Sikhs. And though it wasn't referred to as a how might we school in that context, um, if you listen to that episode, you can just hear it bubbling up. The the essence of essential questions is mm-hmm. the inquiry part of it, and also the we part of it that you're going to do it together because well, that's what inquiry is all about. So that's right. yeah, that's awesome. And what about from you know what about Dreamhouse Academy from your perch as a board member? Yeah, Dreamhouse, Dreamhouse Eva Beach is focused on on leadership for sure, um, mm-hmm. and they definitely do that through inquiry, providing students with similar experiences. I I know that the school leader there, Alex Teese, mm-hmm. uh, definitely learned a lot from Buffy and from from Seeks, and so there's definitely some similarities there. But they are really pushing students into the spaces, any space to take leadership, anything, you mm-hmm. know, like what's an idea that you have? Okay, let's do it. Whatever that is. Uh, if it's a fundraiser, if it's changing the school, um, you know, uniforms, tops, if it's creating a club, like it could be something small. Okay, you want to do it? Go do it. Like pushing them, but with support um, to be leaders right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. As uh, on the board end, I get to hear of all the uh, beautiful things that they're doing. I get to hear about the the growth, you know, how they're going to continue to add a grade every year. And it's exciting that next year we'll be jumping into a ninth grade, crossing that bridge into high school. Wow. And how, yeah, and how <laughs> the team of teachers really is a, is a team. You know, they're, they're always a we. And they share a very small space, which... Maybe that is in the nature of charter schools because Sikhs was the same. You know, you share very small spaces together. But again, it's it's a we. We're all in this learning environment. We are all going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the emphasis being really on leadership and developing future leaders at Dreamhouse at the beach. Mm-hmm. And what I love is that um, not only Dreamhouse and also Sikhs, but really all 37 of our public charter schools here in Hawaii really are, you know, fulfilling the original vision, which was to be demonstration schools to everybody. Um, And each of them brings such unique qualities to the conversation around Mm -hmm. education. And I'm thinking, you know, that it's likely that your eye to eye as it moves forward will include public and charter and maybe even private school educators, right? Is that is that kind of your approach? I'm not limited, you know, that daydream idea. I Mm -hmm. I hope it includes any uh, educators that value the, you know, how might we, I'm just laughing that I started both questions with that. <laughs> right. never, never heard that before. It's so internalized. Who share that same vision, you know, that yes, learning is a, is a, it's a social event. It's a collaborative inquiry. It's, you know, community. Let's, how do, how do we do that? How do mm-hmm. we get there? And then how do we as adults create that for one another? Cause yeah. it is so important, you know, that idea of cohorting that we we talked about you know it's kind of that idea you know making a cohort sort of on the side i do envision eye to eye not being a one-time let's say workshop you know with this 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 upcoming one i did 
really want to have those two parts for at least some, you know, uh, something beyond just a one-time, okay, you know, mm-hmm. good, good luck, see ya. But there's there'll be some bring back, you know, and sharing the second time. And, and I hope that that might be a starting point yep. to develop some community spaces. But yeah, yeah ideally it's not a one-time, yeah. So I don't know what that means. You know, is it a program? Is it a... Is it a PD session? Is it, uh, I don't know. I'm not mm-hmm. sure yet. That's, I'm just kind of jumping into ideas. I'm daydreaming, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like at the, at the very core, it's about starting a family mm-hmm. and all that that entails. And, and I'm really excited that you're going forward with that. And I'm looking forward to watching that happen um, over the months and years to come. So, Tammy, one last question, and it's really been a blast talking to you today. In the journal Education Perspectives, you wrote, quote, as Alfie Cohen writes, all of us yearn for a sense of relatedness or belonging, a feeling of being connected to others. So, Tammy, in the biographic material you sent me, you noted an influential mentor and your dissertation committee chair, Dr. Anne Fries, someone you clearly have a strong connection to. So who is she and what gifts do you carry in your Good Thinkers toolkit that come from her? Wow. I miss Anne. <clears throat> I haven't talked with her in a bit, and she is such an amazing mentor and influence on me. And I met early on in my master's program out here and asked her to guide me and be on my committee for my uh, master's thesis. And then I was honored that she opted to be my uh, director for my graduate program again in my doctoral studies. And I asked her to be my chair. She opened my eyes to the power of storytelling as a valid form, an extremely valid form of research that I didn't have to just restate what other people have said. I didn't have to read and research and and put together all these, you know, valid, quote unquote, uh, or longstanding theories to support what I was doing to say, see, they said it first, and this is what I'm doing. But rather, I could tell my own story. Mm. And I could provide the value to that in that story um, was completely blown away when she encouraged me to do a self study as my uh, doctoral research wow, and in support, you know, she definitely understands and valued philosophy for children. And she knew that was definitely who I am as an educator. And she respected Dr. Thomas Jackson um, and all the work he's done over the years with P4C. And so she encouraged, you know, do that and tell the story of that and get that feedback from your students. And that is a valid contribution to, you know, the research. Mm. So I carried that with me, you know, that, that storytelling is not just to pass the time or to share an experience. It really is an insight, Mm. valuable way of doing, you know, research, sharing research. And yeah, I I guess, I guess self-reflection, you know, Mm. how important that is. Um, and not just keeping it to yourself, um, but sharing Mm. it beyond self to give insight. Yeah. Wow. What a gift she gave you, Tammy. Right, I mean, just the gift of liberation, of liberation from from the canon and the the usual way of doing things. Let's you know, just saying to you, let's have you tell your story, um, and let's have you construct it y- yourself. Right? Wow, that's just that's so awesome. What a nice thing, and to be able to look back on that, yeah. She definitely uh, wanted me to 
grounded in, you know, the research, but I was just as valid. My experience were just was just as valid as, you know, that Alfie Cohen quote or John Dewey or, yeah. you know, whoever I was putting in there. And and that was also, they were also guides, you know, like, yeah, that this resonates with me. That's what I want for my students. But mm-hmm. yeah, putting the value on me as the educator again as the professional yeah. to tell the stories was yeah. was huge. Yeah, my my master's thesis advisor was Dr. Marianne Raywood, who sadly passed on a few years ago, but I had a similar relationship with her and experienced similar gifts from her, you know, the gift of, and I, and my master's was written about service learning, um, which was sort of a passion for me at that time, and it's continued to be, but um, the ways that she helped coach and guide and, and give me the freedom to think it through in the ways that were unique to me. Um, were very special. So I, I really understand what you're saying about Dr. Anne Fries. That's a great shout out. Thank you for that. <laughs> so Dr. Tammy Jones, thank you for spending this time with us today. I hope you and your loved ones remain safe and in good health. Thank you for all you do to bring the joy of learning to our children here in Hawaii. Uh, thanks so much, Josh. This was, this was great. This was fun. And you definitely pushed me to reflect a lot as well during it. So I appreciate you. That's great. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at MLTSNHawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.